So I, I know you've got a lot going on. But remember, I'm here for you. So bother me when no one's listening, because I will. Bother me when it feels like it won't get better, because it can. Bother me because you're never a bother. Whether it's a low point or a crisis, get help for yourself or a friend. Learn more at neverabother.org or call or text 988, available 24-7. Hello, everyone. What is up? Welcome back to another episode of Killer Instinct. If you are new here, hi, my name is Savannah. I'm your host of Killer Instinct. Before we get started, make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button. That way you never miss an episode. We post weekly on the podcast every Wednesday and we post the video version on YouTube as well on Wednesdays and you are not going to want to miss it. Now, you guys, for today's case, this is one of those cases, and I feel like I've been saying it more frequently over the past few weeks, but these are the types of cases that really make you question if there is anyone you can ever trust in the world. This is a truly horrific case, and we are talking about the case of Bill Exum today. So with that being said, let's jump right on into it. Bill Exum was born on New Year's Eve 1959, so December. 31st to his parents, Glenn and Kathleen in Seattle, Washington. He grew up with two sisters, Diane and Sherry, and graduated from Sandy Union High School in 1978 before going on to attend Clackamas Community College and then moving on to graduate from their computer career institute. Now, throughout high school, Bill worked on a farm in Boring, Oregon, and then after college, Bill went on to get a job at Consolidated Frightways, which is a truckload freight service, and he worked there as a supervisor. And Consolidated Frightways was and is a company that held a lot of merit throughout Oregon. And so because Bill was a supervisor, he was very well known throughout the community and very well liked. He was known as being the family guy, the stand-up guy, and he didn't have any enemies. And it was while Bill was in high school that he would meet the woman that would go on to be his wife, and that would be a woman named Carolyn Keck. Now, this is very stereotypical high school sweetheart scenario. You have Bill, who was the football quarterback, and you have Carolyn, who was the cheerleader, and they started dating when Bill was a senior and Carolyn was a freshman at Sandy Union High School. Carolyn was very well liked by her classmates and her personality was even described as being as sweet as quote unquote cotton candy. That's how bubbly she was. She was very inviting, welcoming. She had a very warm spirit about her and it was something that was very endearing to everyone around her, especially Bill. And after Carolyn graduated high school in 1983, the two of them decided to tie the knot and get married. Together, Bill and Carolyn had four children, and one thing that Bill and Carolyn did have in common was the fact that they always prioritized their kids 
first. Like I mentioned, Bill was the family man and so was Carolyn. They were always front and center at their kids' sporting events or graduation ceremonies, dance recitals. Like they were always the ones that were front and center cheering their kids on and supporting them in whatever they wanted to do. And because of that, it definitely painted a very idyllic picture for the Exum family on the outside. Everything looked great. You had the loving husband and wife, the four children. Everyone seemed happy. But then everything changed. On March 21st, 1999, at approximately 12.41 a.m., Carolyn's neighbor had called 911 after Carolyn had raced over to their house, telling them that her and Bill had been attacked. The neighbor told the 911 operator that Bill had been bludgeoned over the head and was laying in a pool of blood, and Carolyn was also injured, and she was hit over the head as well with a heavy object. The neighbor told the operator that all of this had happened while Bill and Carolyn's four children were asleep upstairs. When police arrived on the scene, Carolyn was standing outside with a towel to her head alongside her neighbors. Carolyn told police that she was getting ready for bed that night when she heard a loud noise coming from the garage downstairs. She claimed that she knew that Bill was working down in the office, which was in the garage, so she went down to check on him, and that is when she found Bill laying in a pool of blood. It was clear that Bill had been bludgeoned, and while Carolyn was checking on Bill to see if he was still alive, Carolyn was also approached from behind and hit over the head with a heavy object. She claims that when she fell to the ground, she saw the shadow of someone run outside the garage door before she passed out. Shortly after, when Carolyn came to is when she claimed she ran next door to the neighbor's house and asked them to call the police. Now, the EMTs on the scene examined Carolyn's head wound and decided that she needed to go to the hospital to get stitches. Now, the first thing that police did when they arrived to the Exum household was search the house to make sure that whoever the intruder was, was gone. And when police arrived, there was no intruder in the home. They also went to all of the kids' bedrooms and checked on each child to make sure that every one of them was safe and unharmed. Now, the next thing that police did was check out the actual crime scene. So inside of the Exums' home, more specifically the garage, like I had mentioned, the Exums had created a makeshift office space. It was a place that Bill used. It was sometimes a place that Carolyn utilized as well. So in order to get to the office, police had to walk through the garage. And when they did that, they found the body of Bill Exum laying in the office. The upper half of Bill's body was laying in the office while the lower half of Bill's body had extended into the garage. And the first thing that police had noticed was the absolute brutality of this crime scene. There was blood absolutely everywhere. There was blood on the walls. There was blood on the ceiling. There was blood all over the desk. Pieces of brain matter and brain tissue were scattered throughout the office as well. There was also a chair found in the garage that appeared to be tipped over in a very bizarre fashion that police took note of. And when the forensic team arrived on the scene, they began collecting as much evidence as possible, taking as many pictures as possible. That way they would be able to narrow down whoever did this. However, the one thing that they were not able to recover was the murder weapon. 
They weren't able to figure out what exactly was the object that was used to kill Bill. They didn't know if it was a metal pipe, a golf club, a baseball bat. They weren't sure what type of weapon they were dealing with. However, there were some markings on the wall that resembled straight lines of blood, which police believed were markings that were made by the murder weapon when the murder weapon hit the wall. And so when they made that discovery, they were able to narrow it down slightly to believe that whatever this murder weapon was, was a straight rod of some sort, like an iron rod or a golf club, something of that nature. Now, as far as the autopsy goes, the medical examiner concluded that the cause of death for Bill was blunt forced trauma. There were 11 blunt strikes to his head, causing parts of his brain to leave his skull and be thrown throughout the room. The medical examiner and police were able to agree that the brutality of the death really suggested that this was a personal attack. This was overkill, and this was someone who was full of rage and someone whose main goal was to have Bill dead. Imagine an app designed to make you use it less. Seems a little counterproductive, right? Well, Apartments.com's Instant Alert feature works exactly that way. Instead of scanning rental listings a million times a day, simply set and forget your search to whatever you're looking for in a place and let Apartments.com do the rest. From pet-friendly apartments to balconies to in-unit ACs, Apartments.com's powerful search tools let you know when the perfect combination of features you're seeking is listed. So you don't have to power through rental descriptions one by one. With more rental listings than anywhere else, Apartments.com Apartments.com's instant alerts mean that you can spend less time looking for the perfect place and more time on just doing you. Apartments.com, the place to find a place. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Now, the next thing that police wanted to do in their investigation was canvas the neighborhood and talk to the neighbors of the Exums to see if anyone had heard or seen anything suspicious that night. However, when speaking to the neighbors, everyone said that this was a very normal night. No one heard anything. No one saw anything. However, one thing that multiple neighbors did note to police was that where their neighborhood was located, they were surrounded by a very wooded area, and it wasn't uncommon for homeless to sleep in the woods. And beyond that, there had been multiple instances of robberies and home invasions over the past few months. So with this new information, it definitely led police to believe that Bill's murder could have been the result of a home invasion gone wrong. So at this point, police went back into the Exum home and started looking around to see if any belongings were taken. 
However, after conducting that search, they realized that there were no valuables taken from the home and there were plenty to steal just in the garage alone. So if an intruder had murdered Bill and was running their way out, there would have been multiple things that they could have grabbed along their way. Along with that, there was no sign of forced entry. And with no sign of forced entry, along with the fact that there were no valuables stolen, it really reduced the likelihood that Bill's death was a result of a home invasion. Police really viewed this case as whoever broke into the house was there for the sole purpose to kill Bill. But just to be even more sure, police searched all throughout that wooded area that the neighbors were referring to. They brought in search dogs, they conducted search parties, they were canvassing every square inch of that wooded area to see if there was anything that belonged to the Exums or any sign of a murder weapon. However, there was nothing to be found. Now, after Carolyn was able to get treated for her injuries at the hospital, police brought her down to the station to ask a couple of questions in regards to Bill's life, if he had any enemies, anyone who would want to hurt Bill. But throughout these questions, Carolyn was very stumped. She said that Bill was a very ordinary guy. He lived a very normal life with her and their four kids. He was a family man. He was someone that a lot of people respected, and there wasn't anyone in their lives that Carolyn could think would want to do something like this. Now, while police were speaking to Carolyn, they had asked her to change out of the clothes that she was wearing because during the questioning, Carolyn was still wearing the clothes that she had worn during the attack and police had noticed that there was blood on Carolyn's pants. Now, Carolyn was able to change out of those clothes and change into a different set of clothes that the police provided her. And the reason that they asked her to change was because they believed it was possible that there was some sort of DNA on Carolyn. Carolyn's pants. Whether that be from the blood or somewhere else, they believed that if there was any sort of DNA, that they could possibly find it on those pants. And Carolyn claimed that the reason that she had that blood on her pants to begin with was because when she discovered Bill's body, she had crouched down and gotten onto her knees to try to assess his injuries. And in the process of doing that, she had gotten his blood on her pants. So Carolyn willingly gave her clothes over to the police to go off to forensic testing. Now, shortly into the entire investigation of Bill's murder, there was a neighbor who had actually come forward to police with some pretty damning information. According to this neighbor, they claimed that leading up to Bill's death, there was a red and silver pickup truck that would be seen in the neighborhood. Now, according to this neighbor, this pickup truck did not belong to anyone in the neighborhood. No one had seen it until the months leading up to Bill's death. However, even more so, so what was weird was the fact that the red and silver pickup truck during the day would park right outside of Carolyn and Bill's home. So during the day, the red and silver truck was outside of their house. However, at night, the truck would drive a few blocks down the road and park at the end of the street. Now, again, this neighbor couldn't say who this truck belonged to. However, they knew it didn't belong to the Exums, and it just seemed strange, the pattern of behavior of sitting outside of the house and then moving down several blocks over the course of a few months. 
Now, with this new piece of information, police wanted to speak to whoever owned this red and silver truck. However, this was a lot more difficult than you might imagine because they had nothing to go off of other than the fact that this truck was seen lingering throughout the neighborhood. They didn't know who this truck belonged to. They didn't know what this person looked like, whether it was a man who owned the truck or a woman who owned the truck. They did not know anything in regards to who this truck belonged to. But luckily, shortly into searching into this truck, there was a local florist who called police. Now, again, you have to imagine that this is a fairly small town that this murder occurred in, and word had traveled fast about Bill's death. And because Bill was such a lovable and likable person, there were so many people throughout the community that wanted to do anything they could to help solve this and bring Bill's killer to justice. So shortly after looking into who owns this truck. There was a local florist who contacted police to tell them that several weeks before Bill's death, there was someone who had placed an order of flowers to be delivered to Carolyn, and the florist claimed that when she saw the order, more specifically when she saw what was written on the card for the flowers, something seemed a little off to her. Now, the message on these flowers was, quote, a little bit of sunshine to my best friend with love, end quote. Now, this just raised some red flags for detectives. Who was sending Carolyn this kind of message? Why was someone sending Carolyn this message? There was nothing that had happened in Carolyn's life where she would be congratulated with flowers or given flowers for any reason. It wasn't a birthday. It wasn't a graduation. It wasn't anything of that sort. So why was someone sending her these types of flowers? Now, luckily, the person who ordered these flowers used their real name. They didn't fake the name. They didn't do anything of that sort. They used their real name when placing this order. And the name of the person placing the order for the flowers was Alan Browning. Now, sure enough, when police looked up Alan Browning in the system, they found that he, in fact, drove a red and silver pickup truck. So now this leads to the question, who is Alan Browning? Alan and Carolyn actually went to high school together, so the same high school that Bill went to as well. However, Alan and Carolyn graduated in the same class. Now, Alan and Carolyn had very different experiences in high school. Like I mentioned, Carolyn was described as being as sweet as cotton candy. She was bubbly, lively. She was popular, dating the football player all of that. Alan, on the other hand, had a much different experience. He was more introverted, didn't talk to a lot of people. He was definitely more known of being the outcast. He was timid, he kept to himself, and throughout high school, him and Carolyn did not have any sort of friendship or relationship. So whatever transpired between Carolyn and Alan had to have transpired in their later adult years. So now with this new discovery, police sit Carolyn down and they ask her about her relationship with Alan Browning. And that is when Carolyn told them that her and Alan had reconnected roughly two years prior to Bill's death. 
At the time that they had reconnected, Alan was going through a pretty bad divorce and Carolyn had a lot of empathy and compassion for Alan and she very much opened up her home to Alan. She actually asked Bill to help minister Alan through this rough time that he was having and Bill and Alan actually grew a friendship as well because of that because Bill was very welcoming to Alan. He wanted to help him through this time. And when it came to the flowers, Carolyn claimed that the reason that Alan sent them was just as a thank you for getting his life back on track. And Carolyn adamantly denied any sort of affair with Alan. She claimed that everything was very platonic from the beginning to the end. She So even though Carolyn claimed that the relationship with Alan never exceeded anything other than platonic, the police aren't so sure. They ended up reaching out to Alan's ex-wife to get her side of the story and to see if she knew anything about the relationship, whatever that may be, between Carolyn and Alan. And boy, did she. According to Alan's ex-wife, part of the reason that her marriage with Alan ended was because Alan was obsessed with Carolyn. And again, from the ex-wife's perspective, the reason that their marriage failed, again, was partially to blame because of that obsession that Alan had with Carolyn. And Alan was not secretive when it came to his liking for Carolyn. He let everyone in his life know, all of his friends, even his ex-wife. He was very open about the feelings that he had always harbored for Carolyn. And these feelings began when Alan was in high school. He always viewed Carolyn as the girl he would never be able to have, the one that got away, even though there was nothing to be let go of in the first place because their relationship was non-existent in high school. But he never thought that he would be able to be with someone like Carolyn. And he definitely put her on a pedestal, so to speak. Alan's ex-wife even remembers finding a letter that Alan wrote to Carolyn that said, quote, I can live without my son, but I cannot live without you, end quote. And according to Alan's ex-wife, she claimed that when she saw that note, she knew that this marriage was way past any sort of saving if Alan was able to so quickly and so easily give up his son for Carolyn. Now, during the time that Bill's murder occurred, Alan's ex-wife and her son were actually away on vacation, so they were not home. However, Alan did not go on the vacation with them, so Alan was at home. Now, by the time the ex-wife had gotten home, Bill's murder had already occurred. It had been several days since Bill's murder, and the ex-wife had actually found out through just the talk of the town. She didn't even find out from Alan. And immediately that struck her as odd because Alan was constantly talking about Bill, constantly talking about Carolyn. So she thought it was very odd that the one time that Alan decides to not speak about Bill and Carolyn is during the time that Bill had died. Now, police went on to ask Alan's ex-wife if he owned any weapons, anything that could be used to harm someone. And while Alan's ex-wife said he had no guns, nothing of that sort, he did have something that he called a fish whacker. And this fish whacker was quite simply just a metal rod and it had fish whacker written on it. 
Again, she described it as a sturdy metal rod, and that was exactly the type of weapon that police believed that they were looking for from the beginning. Now, the ex-wife claimed that this fishing rod, fish whacker, would always be kept in Alan's truck, and if it's not in the truck, then something was very, very wrong. Now, at this point, police wanted to do some surveillance on Alan. They wanted to build a strong enough case and get as much information as possible before following through with an arrest. And in order to do that, again, they wanted to surveillance him. They wanted to follow him. So they started placing cameras throughout town to the places that Alan frequently visited. One of those places was Alan's son's karate class. So police had actually placed a surveillance camera on the side of this strip mall because the karate class took place in this outdoor strip mall area. And so they put the camera on the side of the strip mall right where the karate class was that also overlooked the parking lot of this karate class and of this strip mall. And coincidentally, enough, Alan's son went to the same karate class as Carolyn's children. They went to the same karate class at the same time. And police were able to discover through these surveillance tapes that during the karate class, Carolyn and Alan would sneak out of the class, go into the parking lot, go into Carolyn's van, and you probably can figure out the rest. And just to be clear, this was all after Bill had died, okay? So this all is happening after Bill's brutal murder. Does that mean that Carolyn cannot move on with her life and start new romantic relationships? No. But is it a little weird? Yes. And so this really started to raise questions for police as to how much does Carolyn really know? She painted this picture that she was just the brave woman who took Alan in and helped him get back on his feet and helped him get his life in order, and that was it, when clearly that was not it. So because of that, police began to follow Carolyn as well, and they also decided to do a wiretap. The courts actually approved for police to install devices in Carolyn's apartment where she had moved into with her kids after Bill's murder. And it was through doing this that the police were able to learn the very detailed, intricate, and intimate relationship of Carolyn and Alan. So the courts approved for police to install devices in Carolyn's apartment, which is where she had moved in with her kids after Bill's death. And it was after installing those devices that police got a very intricate, detailed, and intimate look into Carolyn and Alan's relationship. Not only did the police hear the two of them be physical together on multiple occasions, however, they also were able to kind of understand a little bit more about the power dynamic in this relationship and how Carolyn was very much more the dominant in this relationship. It was very clear to police from the get-go after hearing a lot of these recordings back that Alan was submissive to Carolyn. He went along for the ride with whatever she said. For example, if Alan were to ever say anything and if Carolyn was to have a differing opinion, within a split second, Alan would change his mind and say that he agrees with Carolyn instead. Alan was Carolyn's puppet. Carolyn was the mastermind. That was the dynamic in this relationship. 
Now, on the night of May 9th of 1999, police were listening in on Carolyn's apartment. And in doing so, they learned that Carolyn was with Alan and her children. Now, in the recording, Carolyn told Alan that she was going to put her kids to bed. And in that time, Alan decided that he was going to go out to his car to grab something. However, however, after turning around to walk back to Carolyn's apartment, he was intercepted by police and arrested arrested immediately. Now, after Alan was arrested, more officers went up to Carolyn's apartment where they knocked on the door, and to both Carolyn and police's surprise, Carolyn opened the door wearing nothing but lingerie. Obviously, Carolyn was under the impression that it would be Alan knocking on the door. However, she was quickly proven wrong, changed, and placed under arrest as well. Now, when Alan and Carolyn were transported to the police station, they were put into two different interrogation rooms, and police knew pretty automatically that Alan was going to be the weaker link between him and Carolyn. They definitely thought that Alan would break first and that Carolyn would hold strong based on the fact that she was more of the mastermind throughout the relationship, and that is exactly what happened. Police confronted Carolyn about the knowledge of the affair that they had had, and they gave her proof. They gave her the pictures of the karate classes. They told her that they had been listening in on her apartment. And even though Carolyn did admit to the affair at this point, because she had to, she definitely minimized it to the fullest extent. Carolyn claimed that her and Alan were simply just a friends with benefits relationship and that it transpired after Bill's death. Now, on the flip side, Alan was much more open about the affair, and that was to no one's surprise. He claimed that him and Carolyn were in a loving relationship and that the two of them had been seeing each other for months at that point. Now, the interviews were lasting for several hours, and throughout those hours, throughout that time, Alan's anxiety was really heightening, and he had asked if he could hear Carolyn's voice, and police were actually very, very smart when doing this because they agreed to allow Alan hear Carolyn, so they brought him over to her interrogation room and had him stand outside of the door. And it was while he was outside of the door that not only did he hear Carolyn minimize their relationship, but he actually heard Carolyn make a shocking confession. Carolyn had claimed that she knew that Alan murdered Bill. However, she was afraid for not only her safety, but for the safety of her children, and that Alan had been threatening her, saying that if she told anyone, he would harm them. Now, Alan is on the other side of this door, listening to all of this. He's listening to Carolyn throw him under the bus, and it was soul-crushing for him. As you can imagine, Alan's whole world was Carolyn. It had been Carolyn for years, even during the times that they were both married and in different relationships. Alan had always been thinking about Carolyn. So now hearing that Carolyn is throwing him under the bus and minimizing the relationship that was so prominent in his life, it felt like the ultimate betrayal. And at this point, Alan began unraveling. Alan admitted that in the months leading up to the murder, him and Carolyn had began their affair. And again, he claimed that he was in awe of Carolyn because he never believed that he could be with someone like her. 
However, Alan claimed that over time and slowly but surely, Carolyn became very controlling in the relationship. Carolyn even went as far as telling Alan that he wasn't allowed to wear his wedding ring anymore during the times that he was still married. Now, it was throughout all of this that Alan and Carolyn began talking about their future. However, Carolyn told Alan that the only way that they would ever be able to be together in the future is if Bill was dead. And the reason for that is because if Bill was dead, then Carolyn could inherit the $415,000 life insurance insurance policy that Bill had. Now, at first, Alan was very apprehensive to the idea. He told police that he did not want to go as far as killing Bill. He was very apprehensive to all of it. However, this is when Carolyn decided to bring out the big guns. She started telling Alan that Bill was being physically abusive to her, to the children, that he was being demeaning, and that at this point, he needed to be killed not just for the life insurance policy, but for her safety. And for Alan, having put Carolyn on this pedestal, here Hearing that Carolyn's life was in danger, this definitely had more of an incentive to him than the money. It should be noted, however, that not once in any of the interviews that Carolyn had with police did she ever claim that Bill was abusive to her or the children, and there has never been any evidence to prove that that was actually the case. So at this point, Alan tells police exactly what the plan was on the night of the murder, the plan that Carolyn came up with. The plan was that on the night of the murder, Carolyn was going to lure Bill down into the garage. She was going to lure him by promising him a sexual favor. She was going to have him sit in a chair with his hands tied behind his back and blindfolded. After he was blindfolded and tied up, the plan was for Alan to come in and kill. But not only that, that wasn't the only part of the plan. The plan was that after Bill had been killed, Carolyn and Alan were then going to light the house on fire and let everything inside of it burn. And again, Carolyn had her four children in that house. Now, luckily, the burning of the house never happened. However, the first part did. After Bill had been blindfolded and tied up, Alan entered the room holding his fish whacker and began attacking Bill. Now, Bill did not go down without a fight because according to Alan, Bill still got up after being tied to the chair and began trying to fight back. And in doing so, the blindfold fell off of Bill's face and he was able to come face to face with his killer. At this point, Alan said that he panicked because now he was identified and he began flinging the fishwhacker around. Now, at some point, the fishwhacker actually fell on the floor and Carolyn was just standing there. Bill gestured to Carolyn to give him the fishwhacker. That way he could fight back on his attacker. But instead, Carolyn picked up the fishwhacker and gave it to Alan. And after one final strike... Bill was dead. Alan told police that he had buried the fishwhacker outside of his parents' backyard, and lo and behold, police were able to find it there. And to really put the nail in the coffin for Carolyn, police were able to go back and look at her pants. Remember the pants that she was wearing during her initial interview that had blood on them, and she claimed the blood was from getting on her knees and trying to assess Bill's injuries? Well, a forensic analyst and a blood spatter expert was able to look at those pants, and they were able to see that the blood 
spatter on the pants was not consistent with if Carolyn had gotten on her knees to assess the injuries. In fact, the blood spatter was consistent with Alan's story of her just standing there while Bill was being attacked. Now, when police told Carolyn what Alan's version of events were, she adamantly denied them. However, at that point, with Alan's confession, police were able to go ahead with an arrest for Alan and Carolyn for the murder of Bill Exum. Both of them ended up receiving a life sentence with a 25-year minimum, and during the sentencing, Alan gave a statement and apologized. However, Carolyn showed absolutely no remorse whatsoever. To this day, Carolyn takes no responsibility for the murder and claims that Alan was responsible for all of this and the only thing that she was guilty of was having an affair with Alan. So you guys, that is the case of Bill Exum. Now one thing I do want to point out that you guys might be wondering as well and it's a question that I have that I wasn't able to find the answer to was in the beginning of this case it was mentioned that Carolyn also had a head wound. She was injured. She had been hit over the head with something. So do we believe Carolyn went as far as hitting herself over the head with an object to show that she was also attacked? It never was mentioned in Alan's confession what had happened and why Carolyn had been hit over the head. Now with Alan being as obsessed with Carolyn as he was it I could see it going both ways I could see him saying that he doesn't want to actually hurt her and he's not going to hit her over the head and maybe Carolyn did that to herself or I could see Carolyn manipulating Alan into thinking that that was what needed to happen in order to make this look believable and real. Personally, based off of the recordings that were found in the apartment when police wiretapped Carolyn's apartment and during the surveillance recordings and all of the secrets that Carolyn had kept surrounding her and Alan's relationship, I do believe that she was very well aware, if not entirely responsible, for what had happened to Bill Exum. But I'm very interested to see what you guys have to say about it. So with that being said, you guys, that is all for me today. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Killer Instinct. If you're new here, hi, my name is Savannah. I'm your host of Killer Instinct. Make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button. That way you never miss an episode. We post weekly on the podcast every Wednesday. You're not gonna wanna miss it. I'll be back next week and I hope to see you there. So until then, stay safe. Bye guys. So I I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, I'm here for you. So bother me when no one's listening, because I will. Bother me when it feels like it won't get better, because it can. Bother me because you're never a bother. Whether it's a low point or a crisis, get help for yourself or a friend. Learn more at neverabother.org or call or text 988, available 24-7. So I, I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, I'm here for you. So bother me when no one's listening, because I will. Bother me when it feels like it won't get better, because it can. Bother me because you're never a bother. Whether it's a low point or a crisis, get help for yourself or a friend. Learn more at neverabother.org or call or text 988, available 24-7.